Hey, Juicebox. Yep. Since uh, COVID started and we've now been, you know, six, seven months into it, what is the one thing that you miss prior to everything shutting down? I mean, I guess beyond just general being around other people in public, um, probably going to concerts because Dana and I had some pretty awesome tickets this spring and summer. Well, what if I told you that I had something for that empty feeling of not being able to go to, go to a concert this year? Um, I'm listening. We've talked about it on the show before, but the real deal is... Oh, 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 oh. This is a CBD ad. It is a CBD ad. Okay. okay. Yes, because we have a great sponsor in Two Tours CBD. We actually got the website right this time. We did. It's actually twotours.com. And if you add a forward slash raising Nashville on the back end of that, you're going to get a special deal. That's right. I don't know what it is, but it's great. It is incredible. And if you are feeling the low-end, empty feeling of not being able to go to a concert this year, uh, and we're going to hold you over until 2021 with Two Tours CBD. People, you know what CBD is. Why do we have to explain it to you? You, We don't. It is uh, something that is going to you know, ease your anxiety and pain. It is going to allow you to get into a euphoric state until you can officially walk into a venue next year and see your favorite band play. You're really overselling it. TwoTours.com forward slash Raising Nashville for your special offer. Two Tour CBD. We came home together. We grow together. Raising Nashville. Raising Nashville. Raising Nashville. Welcome to Raising Nashville. I'm Bucky. Juicebox. And in a town with a moniker of Music City, USA, we must have some pretty incredible and historic music venues, right? Yeah, I've heard of a couple here. Yeah, among the likes of places like The Basement, uh, Send Amphitheater, Exit Inn, City Winery, The Five Spot, The Inn, D's Country Cocktail Lounge, Marathon Music Works. There's a rich and historic past among Nashville music venues. The Ryman Auditorium is the most sought out, one of the most sought out venues in the country. If you walk the corridors of Municipal Auditorium, you will see enlarged concert tickets of bands who have played there like the Rolling Stones and the Grateful Dead. Our focus today doesn't want to take away from all of those great venues and what makes Nashville such a special place. Instead, we want to highlight a period of time for Nashvillians that allowed for up to 18,000 people to enjoy their favorite bands with each other underneath the beautiful stars of Antioch, Tennessee. Hmm. Take it, me away, Bucky. If you're new to Nashville, you might have heard that Antioch doesn't always get the, uh, the best rap. Some people even turn their nose up to the word Antioch itself. But what if we told you there used to be an excitement in that part of Nashville? What if we told you Antioch, Tennessee, of all places, was a stop on your favorite band's world tour? Yes, Antioch. Just 25 minutes from the neon lights of Broadway, we used to be entertained by the likes of Aerosmith, Metallica, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Fish, Winona Judd, Britney Spears, Whitney Houston, and yes, even 
Spinal Tap and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> so, like, hold, hold, hold up. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yes. They went on a world tour. I would say a national tour. Probably around the 91, 92 era. I'm going to say this was Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze. When they had a little little rap group of, around them. You know, you remember the vanilla, vanilla Ice days? Do you remember the, like they used to give out tapes when you got pizzas at Pizza Hut? I, I remember our episode about Ninja Turtles and Vanilla Ice. I, I rem- <laughs> I'm familiar with that now. I, I'm just curious about how that worked. Like, with, did they have a band? Were they pretending to play instruments? Were they even? I, I mean, obviously, it was like a Milli Vanilli type scenario, right? They weren't like rapping inside of the turtle masks. It's funny that you say that because Milli Vanilli also played uh, this venue that we're talking about. Holy shit! But ultimately, I was way too too young for Ninja Turtles concerts at that time, so I have no idea. If you haven't caught on by now, today we're talking about the local, never forgotten haven for live music lovers, young and old. While it went through a few name changes over the years to us, it will always be known as Starwood Amphitheater. We're going to go through the history of Starwood as we remember it, talk about the downfall, sprinkle in multiple interviews from former workers and Starwood attendees, and close the topic with the ever-changing idea of what to do with the 77 acres off i-24 right i'm personally excited about this because i didn't know much about starwood you know i know you guys talked about it a lot and other people i knew that lived close to nashville had come to show us here but i never came down for it so i'm pretty excited about it when you said the fall of it i mean you made it sound so epic like what what kind of dirty shady business are we uh in for here I, i wouldn't say shady i would just say towards the end it may not have been the moneymaker as they foresaw it for a very long time. Yeah, I get that. Um, it, it was 20 years of greatness. So uh, what we're going to call these uh, episodes, and yes, we say episodes. So we're going to do a two-part series on Starwood. I am calling this From the Monkeys to Motley Crew: A History of Starwood Amphitheater. And you will kind of get that idea uh, as we continue to talk go through some interviews, talk about some fun facts and memories and concerts and, you know, everything that surrounded that little special place in the woods off I-24 or Murfreesboro Road or Old Hickory Boulevard, whichever way you took. Yeah, so let me just uh, pick a bone with your uh, title real quick. You said From the Monkeys to Motley Crue, but before that, you named off Ninja Turtles, which I feel like is even more of an obscure music <laughs> act than, than uh, the Monkeys, you know? Like, I think there was more than that. I mean, there there were some crazy things that surrounded Starwood. I want to say in 1990, uh, there was a big Bart Simpson type character who led the symphony on the stage of Starwood Amphitheater. What the hell? Yes. Um, <laughs> Bill Cosby actually was part of the ribbon cutting for Starwood with the mayor. No. <laughs> Maybe that wasn't the best reference. Um, there's been many things. Britney Spears, Baby Hit Me One More Time Tour, landed at Starwood. Yeah, I'm not surprised. <laughs> But we'll get into many, many, many concerts that happened there and many stories behind those concerts. I think we have to preface, too, like for people that didn't live here, like there was no Bridgestone at that point, right? Like, there was whatever, whatever it was called back then. Like, so it was kind of the big concert place. It was, I think back then there was a divide that we don't see now between large venues and small venues because. 
you know, Starwood opened uh, in the late 80s, and back then I think you had Municipal Auditorium. The Ryman was still closed until the early 90s. So you had Municipal, you had small places like Exit Inn, uh, and then you had Starwood Amphitheater. So you're talking... I think municipal could hold, you know, 6,000 people. Yeah, um, yeah. And then exit in, obviously, we're looking at a small 150-person venue. And then all of a sudden, you have this 18,000-person behemoth that's 25 minutes from Nashville. All right. So, yeah, you said it, you, it opened in the late 80s. It actually opened in 1986. So let's jump into the history of it a little bit because, I mean, I can look that up at least. I don't have any stories, <laughs> stories to tell, but... So Starwood Amphitheater, like I said, it opened in 1986. It was construction started in 1985, uh, November 1985 is I think what I saw, um, and it cost. Uh, this is what it was reported. It cost 7.8 million to build in that in you know 80s money, which would be 19 equivalent to about 19 million dollars today. To put that in perspective, Ascend costs the city 50 million dollars to build. Wow. And when when Starwood today would have cost nineteen million, no, I mean Starwood today would have cost a oh, lot. Well, yeah, yeah, you're not building a music venue for nineteen million now, probably. But I feel like that a lot of that seven point eight million went into like landscaping the area and tearing down trees and you know building parking lots, because it just seems like when you build a structure out of uh, concrete, it, it can't be that expensive. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure, man. I, you're asking the wrong person about construction costs. <laughs> Another point I wanted to make, like um, Starwood held like 17,000, 18,000 people, something like that. Ascend mm. holds 6,800 people. Yeah. Anyway, Starwood Amphitheater is the brainchild of this guy named Steve Moore. Um, apparently, he was the former CEO of the Country Music Association. Mm-hmm. Okay, well... He, he also worked for a concert company in Houston booking acts at uh, Astro Worlds and Six Flags over Texas. So that mm-hmm. was like his thing, his booking concerts for that. But in 1985, he moved to Nashville and he was hoping to open his own venue, you know, using the experience that he'd got there. And he wanted to tailor this venue towards bands like the like shitty version of the Beach Boys, um, fucking Cheeseburger in Paradise Dude. Uh, <laughs> The fucking Eagles. Man, come on. I had a rough night, and I hate the fucking Eagles, man. <laughs> I think Lebowski said it best. So he was uh, he was targeting the, the big sellers right then, right? Yeah, the draws. He was. Yeah, he was. I mean, uh, the, Hold on. Who was the bad version of the Beatles? No, the Beach Boys. Beach it's, Boys. It's, it's still the Beach Boys, but it's just like, you know, not the... It's not the... Pet Sounds Beach Boys. It's oh. like the uh, Kokomo Beach Boys or whatever. <laughs> like the shit you don't care about. You know, the cheesy, terrible. The like, collared shirts tucked into jeans Beach Boys. But anyway, construction started in ni- in November of 1985, and they had their first concert in June of 1986. And I guess there's some debate about what the first concert actually was. There's a lot of debate about that. I couldn't find. the first The first thing I saw listed there was Blue Oyster Cult. And then the rest of that summer, there was other bands like uh, Charlie Daniels, The Monkees, Loverboy, Willie Nelson, Whitney Houston, mm. the uh, Cheeseburger in Paradise guy. Uh, Jimmy Buffett is who you're referring to, right? It has to be. Because he wrote Cheeseburgers in Paradise here in Nashville, Tennessee at a little burger shop called Rotiers off West End. Interesting tidbit. It is. Um, it does not make me like him any better. <laughs> okay. Um, and if you're a Jimmy Buffett fan, great. Just not for me. Anyway, Judas Priest, <laughs> Mr. Mister, Amy Grant, Julio Iglesias, 
and Elton John. That's a solid first year lineup. Right? And it's pretty diverse. Like, that's a lot of different types of music. It is. It's not targeting one audience. It's targeting all audiences. And when you say that there's been a when we talked about it, there being a lot of controversy about the first band to play Starwood, they held quite like quite a few free events to the public. Right. And yeah. they held very minimal monetary ticketed events towards the beginning. It may be, you know, a couple of dollars to get in. Um, they just wanted to show people the place. There were bands playing. So some consider those the first people to play Starwood. Yeah, and I didn't bring it up, but that first year there was something called Volunteer Jam, which I guess was a free show. Uh, that was the ch- No, that was a Charlie Daniels. Uh, oh. He's been doing that for a long time. Okay, okay. So, yeah, like Dwight Yoakam, Carl Perkins, Allman Brothers all played with him. A um, lot of people say Carl Perkins was considerably the first person to play and it was during uh, one of those events where it's kind of a multifaceted thing and they had like art and barbecue competitions and stuff like that and Carl Perkins plays and you can find pictures on the Tennessean of that and I think the Pointer Sisters and Hank Williams Jr. and all of those people kind of played these uh, variety shows but man Carl Perkins was looking old during that time and that guy made some incredible music back when you know elvis was big you right. know and johnny cash was coming up yeah it was probably an honor for them to have him kind of be one of the first people to step on that stage uh speaking of the stage it also featured a second stage is, is that right like i was reading something about like they would ha- they had a second stage at one of the in- or close to one of the entrances and like it was, smaller bands would play there, or like opening acts or something like that. From or? what I remember, it was called the Veranda, and it was kind of <clears throat> say you're standing on the stage of Starwood Amphitheater. For those of you out there who are listening to us who vi- like vividly remember Starwood Amphitheater, if you've moved here in the last few years and you listen to our podcast, you might have no idea what we're talking about. You're but gonna, we want you're going to be like me. <laughs> yeah, we want to take you back to a time when we actually enjoyed. Uh, just a simpler life of concerts and amphitheaters. And um, for those of you, if you walked into the main gates of Starwood Amphitheater and kept going, uh, you know, on the concrete slabs, you kept walking up past the top of the grass, the concessions are on your right, the bathroom's on your right, you keep going, and there was a veranda stage up there that catered to much smaller bands. So later on when, like, Ozfest was going on or volunteer jams or um, uh, Buzzfest or, you know, the Lilith Fair, things that were happening, bands would play up there because you could kind of escape the sound of the amphitheater, still have this little stage that catered to about, you know, 1,800 to 3,000 people. Right. Yeah. I was reading something that it said like sometimes like local bands would play up there like before the opening act instead of playing on the main stage, like they'd have them playing there when you're like coming in which I think is an awesome idea. I mean, that's how a lot of bands started at Starwood. A lot of them didn't make it, but some of them did. Um, My first experience was kind of uh, mid-90s, right? So, I, you know, you get out of junior high, you start to go into high school, you're uh, coming of age, so to speak, and you're really into the bands coming up. Like, who was it? It was uh, like the... Uh, green days and to gin me blossoms. gin blossoms we we talked <laughs> you tricked me into that <laughs> uh, we talked earlier about like the spin doctors and uh bands like fish or bands like uh for me no doubt weezer um some of these bands that were in the mid 90s yeah 
they were making names for themselves through the punk and like the garage rock world, but then now they finally made it. And my first concert there um, was actually No Doubt, and Weezer opened up for them on the Blue Album tour. What Weezer opened for No Doubt? They it seems did. like it would be the other way around. It does, right? But No Doubt had just hit hit it big with the album Tragic Kingdom. The craziest concert comes on concert number two for Starwood for me, and that was you know being with one of my friends in junior high, and then kind of ninth grade, I think it was the summer between junior high and ninth grade, potentially, that we wake up early one morning on a Saturday, we go down to our local Kroger's, you know, we're waiting in line out, outside of Kroger, which was crazy. Oh, man. Do you I remember t- that? Yes, I totally forgot. Oh, now I do. I totally forgot about buying, having to buy tickets at Ticketmaster at Kroger. At Kroger. The Damn. people, those machines never worked either. Like no. they were all, the lady was always so confused, especially if the on sale was like five concerts at one time or one day. What the hell was that racket? What the? I don't know. You could also buy tickets at Tower Records. Uh, I do remember that, but I never got a ride down to Tower Records, and Kroger was within walking distance. In Lexington, Kentucky, you could buy tickets at the back of this store called Doll Hairs. Doll Hairs? Doll? Not when I say it out loud, it sounds weird. Doll, <laughs> doll Hairs. Anyway, it was like a clothing store. It was like a... Um, like a Dillard's or something like that, but like locally owned Dillard's, but they had a Ticketmaster like little booth in the back of the store. It was so weird. You'd like go in there randomly. I went in there one time with my mom. I was like, what the hell is this store? Why are we going in here? And it turns out she was buying wrestling tickets at Rubble Arena. Nice. Um, yes. For those of you out there who don't remember how you used to buy concert tickets, um, that's how we did it. Yeah. There was no upcharge. Well, I mean, there was some sort of upcharge, but not nothing like it is now. So I remember going down to the Kroger, standing in line, buying these concert tickets and being so excited about it. I like saved my grass cutting money. Uh, I, I don't think I told my mom exactly what I was purchasing because it was, you know, cash and it was my money. So it comes to the day of the concert. I want to say it's on a Tuesday. And, you know, we it's either right before school starts or right after school started. And she takes me and my buddy down to Starwood Amphitheater. And she, she's like, what band are you going to see? I said, it's a band called Rage Against the Machine. Ever heard of them? <laughs> yeah, that that that's fitting right there. Um, ever heard of them? She was like, no, I, you know, I don't know. Is it a good band? I was like, yeah, they're pretty good. Um, <laughs> so I remember uh, her, you know, again, we talked about that exit off 40 to uh, the Mount Juliet exit. We take the road up. She drops us off, you know, at the top. I remember we specifically asked to get dropped off around, I don't know, 5.30 or so, just so when she turned around and pulled off, uh, it gave us a chance to peruse the parking lot because, you know, your parents are all concerned. They want to see you walk to the gate. So we make that trek to the gate, and then as soon as we get in line, we see her car pull off, and then we turn around, and we're like, hey, man, this looks fun. Yeah, like, right. And that's something we got to talk about. Starwood's parking lot was awesome. Like, it was like a... I don't know. It was a music festival before music festivals existed. See, I read some very conflicting, uh, like testimonials about that. Like some people were running off people drinking and tailgating. Yeah. And then like after a certain period of time, like certain time, maybe some, somebody took over or something and really started to crack down on it, which 
I get it to an extent, but like you said, that is just like part of the atmosphere of a show. It's like you, you don't run people off from a tailgate at a football game. You sure. Know? I think some shows they could control it, and there were some crowds they couldn't. <laughs> yeah, I want right. to say like uh, you're Jimmy Buffett, the guy you love. His crowds, you can't control tailgating. A fish concert there in 1999 and 2000, you can't control those crowds. Um, Rage Against the Machine. Some Skinner shows you know right there's just some concerts you can't control anyway so we peruse the parking lot we go in into the incident amphitheater all of a sudden we miss the opening band all of a sudden the wu-tang clan comes out (laughs) i didn't know much about them at this time what year is this this is uh i want to say 96 or 97 this is before drugs and alcohol and anything that i've experienced in life that has you know diminished any memories that i have i do remember this concert very well uh i was young i was excited and then all of a sudden wu-tang comes out i don't understand any of the words that they're saying they're rapping really fast there's so many of them on stage what i do remember where there were like kids on stage like their kids were on stage with them holding like 40s and everybody on stage had a 40 even these kids and they would come out to the front row and just pour 40s on people and they, they were encouraging their kids to do so and i was just like man this is something that my mom could never know about that no, i like i i don't know if i believe that i will find not starwood but i will find like 1996 97 wu-tang video footage there were children on that stage I need to see them dumping a 40 into people's mouth in the front row. Okay. Uh, We're going to look that up and try to post that on our socials. Because that's a a lot further than a kid being on stage. (laughs) It is. But even 40, maybe, I don't know, the Jizz or Rizza or Method Man were pouring the 40s. But the kids were on stage. I do remember that. Uh, Then Rage comes out. I had, you know, I had uh, Evil Empire. This was before I even knew that the original Rage CD existed. Oh, um, man. And that turns out to be obviously the better one. But I was in Evil Empire at the time. It was all the defiance of my parents. Like, I need to see any CD that says parental advisory, I have to have that, right? <laughs> right. So I go to see Rage Against the Machine. I remember within song one, 30 seconds in, I turn around and I'm like, holy shit. I grabbed my buddy and I said, look back there. There is the biggest fight I've ever seen going on right now. They're going to shut this concert down. Damn. Turns out it was a mosh pit and my first experience with one of those. Oh, man. So the guys were like, everybody was just having a really good time together. And if you remember Starwood Amphitheater, the mosh pit always happened, no matter what concert you were at, right behind the pavilion, right in front of the grass. There was like this concrete walking area, and that was the epicenter of any mosh pit that happened there. Right. It was incredible. Uh, We walked back up there. We watched that. Remember, after the show, my mom was there in the parking lot, ready to pick us up. Um, we get in the car and you know we're probably sweating and I think it rained a little bit during that concert and we get in and she was like so boys how was the show and you know I said we looked at each other we're in the back seat she can't see either of our faces we look at each other and we the eye contact was made and we're like you cannot let her know how much fun that was <laughs> so I just 
Why? Because I didn't want, I was like 14 or 15. I didn't want her to know what world I was in at that point, right? I wanted to be this innocent boy that she loved and raised. And You didn't want her to think you enjoyed a concert that you spent your own hard-earned money on. No, I didn't want her to know it was Rage Against, I didn't want her to look into Rage Against the Machine or Wu-Tang Clan. Oh, okay. I became big fans of then. Um, We looked at each other, we bit our tongues, and we say, well, he was all right, and kind of sounded disappointed, but there was an amazement on our faces the entire (laughs) ride home. I couldn't sleep that night. Yeah, I can imagine. Not only the ringing in the ears that everyone remembers from Starwood or any concert. But like the 40 that was dumped in your mouth by a kid? Just so giddy from that. Speaking of the crazy stories that happened at Starwood Amphitheater, we did get in touch with somebody who has a very special connection to the place. He actually worked there for 10 years. He started, from what we're going to find out here in this interview from the bottom and kind of worked his way up through the ranks at Starwood Amphitheater, he has uh, incredible and infinite knowledge of the topic that we're covering right now. His name is Joe, and we got a chance to sit down with Joe. All right, today we've got a very special guest. His name is Joe, and as Joe knows, uh, we are highlighting a few stories from people affiliated with Starwood uh, in some capacity during its 20-year run. Can you tell our listenership what your direct connection to Starwood is? Uh, I started at Starwood in uh, late 88 and worked up until 97. Did basically everything there was to do backstage, from starting as low as I could on the totem pole to literally climbing the very top of the building and, and hanging the sound and lights and everything out there. That is incredible. Uh, with with potentially hundreds of stories like someone like yourself could tell, uh, can you tell us one of your favorite memories from working at the amphitheater? There was a little-known artist at the time that was around, and uh, everybody knows who he is now. He was managed by one of the people who uh, who did Starwood, and he played at a local bar here. Uh, for many years, and uh, he happened to be the opening act for Ray Charles one night, wow. and uh, Phil Vasher, and uh, so we rented a, uh, a concert grand for Phil to come out and play with uh, as he opened for uh, for Ray. Well, that night, right before the show started, uh, Ray's um, keyboard went down. And, there, and everybody was on the headsets trying to figure out, hey, can we fix this? What are we going to do? Just by chance, we had the uh, the uh, baby grand there that had been rented for Phil Vassar to play. And that night, Ray Charles played that baby grand on stage. We rolled it out there to kind of save the show kind of thing. I mean, he would have done the show regardless without his keyboard, but still. that That's uh, pretty him on that, on that baby grand that night was great. All right. So I have to say, then, then the next question goes into, like, over your – you said you worked there for, what, about 10 years? Yeah, about 10 years. So over your 10-year run, and I know this firsthand just from attending so many concerts there at Starwood. I talked earlier in our podcast about having like a grass pass, which you know only those of the mid-90s remember from 103 KDF. Uh, over your 10-year right. run, what is one of the craziest things you ever saw on any given night? <laughs> okay, I'm going to run. I'll run three or four by you. I saw a, I saw a crew member member walk across the stage absolutely naked, except for an inflatable sex doll sheet taped around his buttocks, and walked across the stage while the main act was playing. 
Uh, was that Red Hot Chili Peppers? No, I, I'm. I'm it, <laughs> that was a joke. I had a uh, major artist. Uh, we were sitting in our crew our crew room, which was off stage left, and his um, his stage manager came and started beating on the door, and he asked us where the closest restroom was because the artist had to take a dump. So the artist had to run off the stage and go to the crew bathroom to use the bathroom. And they said, tell the guitar player to keep playing. And the, the guitar player kept playing and playing and playing. And then uh, later, Ozzy went back to the stage. <laughs> I've seen bands that were on stage that when the lead singer would take a break and he walked around to the back of the stage and met the other band member that they literally just clocked each other and went at each other brawling. Then one walks around the other side of the stage, the other one walks around the other side of the stage, and they keep going with the show, but they were just, <laughs> wow. just knocked down dragon. I was going to say, do you ever remember or have any recollection of people burning pizza boxes in the lawn? Uh, worse than that. Uh, I was working the show. Well, we've, we've had several where there were bonfires lit. But when we were doing a, a Leonard Skinner show, which is funny is because I was talking to the lead singer of Leonard Skinner at the airport uh, when I was in Florida, and I asked him if he remembered that night. He was like, oh, my gosh, yes, we remember that night. But um, they, were, they were about to do, before they had always played Freebird, but they had like an eagle on the piano, and everybody just put their you know, the spotlights down on the Eagle, but they didn't sing it. Well, this night they were going to sing actually Freebird. And before we got to that part, uh, somebody ran into a transformer or one of the power stations and we lost power at Starwood. The whole thing went dark. Oh man. And the crowd did not like that. It was so dark that we were taking flashlights trying to illuminate them from the stage, and they were trying to say, if the power comes back, we'll come back. And it came back on for a second. They started to play again and went out again. And people started, not want to say uh, uh, rioting, but there were there were fires on the hill. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the the seats even down. I think that somebody had even tried to start a fire at the seats. But you know, when you don't give people free burn, what can you expect? <laughs> yeah, it seemed that uh, Jimmy Buffett, uh, Dave Matthews Band, and Leonard Skinner play there every single year. And Metallica, pretty and, much. Yeah, Metallica played a lot too. All right, finally, Joe. Well, you know, they did their rehearsals there at Starwood before they did their their. Um, uh, one of their tours, they set up their whole road show uh, during the spring to practice for their tour. Holy and uh, it was funny. You would walk by the dressing rooms and you would hear this garage band playing the best Metallica you've ever heard. <laughs> and the fact of the matter, it was actually Metallica in the dressing room practicing the music as we were up there getting everything ready for them to take their tour. Oh wow! And, you know, you have to learn, you have to take things up and down and Make sure your lighting cues work. Make sure that everybody knows where they're supposed to be when the pyrotechnics go off. Um, all of those things have to be rehearsed for months before tours take out. So they, they did theirs there at Starwood. And it was very interesting times. Very nice guys. Uh, finally, we have to ask, what is your most favorite or most memorable performance that ever happened at Starwood? One, if you could narrow it down to one single performance you saw in your 10 years, what would it be? Okay, ser- 
was serious and fun. When when Spinal Tap played there, it oh. was it was a not very well attended show, but everybody that was on the crew loved Spinal Tap because everybody knew who Spinal Tap was. A lot of people, maybe your audience members, have no idea, but they came on stage and even in the dressing room and even in the catering, they were all in character all day long. Oh man! And they were absolutely hilarious and i mean there were gigs going on on stage or gags going on on stage that people in the audience couldn't even see but it was really for the crew guys i mean <laughs> things little things that were labeled in funny ways and stuff that you would never ever catch as as a technician and a fan of spinal tap that was fun uh as far as one of the most memorable nights it was raining cats and dogs and stevie ray vaughn was standing up there in the middle of the stage and it was raining sideways through the house and he was playing uh, either um, Can't Stand the Weather or, or Texas Flood. I mean, he was just smoking and this storm was just like going crazy. And that to me is, just, it's, it's, there's so many memorable moments, but that's one that, one that kind of sticks out. That's incredible. That's was what late eighties. Uh, I think my parents talk about that concert quite a bit because my uh, stepdad is a major Stevie Ray Vaughan fan. Before we get out of here, Joe, I want to. We were talking about it a little bit before we started recording. Um, you were talking about the crew that you worked with out there and how you had got some notes from like some of the people that toured through that were like saying this is one of the best crews that we have ever ha worked with. Can you kind of maybe talk about mm -hmm. that a little bit? Like talk about what do you think. Why do you think that crew was so tight and just so good at what they did? A lot of the sound and live video companies and touring companies and trucking companies and bus companies are here. Mm -hmm. So all of the guys on that crew were basically either worked as shop technicians on the days when there weren't shows at Starwood, and they were on the crew there, or they were people who were usually on the road, but... You know, maybe their artist wasn't touring that weekend or wasn't touring that three months of that summer. So we had basically road guys that were local guys. So the intelligence level and the skill set that you had amongst the people that we had there on that crew was probably, I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but I kind of am. I kind of have I've said this to other people before that's on the crew. May have been the best group of assembled technicians in rock and roll or in the music business, not just rock and roll, but wow. in the music business. I've, I've worked with a lot of crews, but there, there was such a cumulative knowledge of the business. I mean, and we had all ranges of people and, and it was just amazing at, at what an accumulative knowledge of people that you had working in that area. There was a sign backstage that said, uh, backstage where high tech meets low life. And we always kind of used to laugh about that. But, um, you know, so, some of the most honorable uh, blood brother type people that you could ever meet in your life. And we've all kind of stayed connected throughout the years. And I'm glad to say that a lot of the people that we worked with at Starwood then, I mean, some of them are gone now, but um, for the most part, the people who stuck with this are out there with some of the biggest tours in the world right now where they're running the show. That's incredible. And that's, that's always good to see. That is awesome. Um, and that was, it, it's great that Starwood was kind of the birthplace of that. Well, 
Joe, we want to say thank you so much for taking the time to share a, just a small piece of your knowledge of Starwood. Um, it, if I could stay here for hours and hours, I would ask you question after question. <laughs> yeah. So hopefully one day we can get together and we can share some cocktails or whatever you decide to drink. And you could tell me an endless array of stories from Starwood. But again, thanks for taking the time. Uh, no problem, guys. I hope you have a good evening, and I hope you got some material worth using. Oh, we definitely do. Definitely. Thanks a lot again. So that was Joe. I just want to tell you guys, like, he had some stories that we had to cut out, and he also had some stories that he wouldn't even, like, he alluded to that he wouldn't tell us. But, man, I don't know about you, Bucky. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to, I really wanted to know some of those stories. Um, so up next, what we're going to do is, uh, as most of you know, Starwood was not always Starwood. And uh, that is, uh, it's inevitable. You know, when you have something popular and you create something, somebody always has to attach their name to it. After opening a Starwood Amphitheater in 1985, the venue went through several name changes further on down the road. So in 1999, the naming rights were sold locally to a place called First American National Bank for five years. The venue was renamed First American Music Center. Get this, for one total year, it was First American Music Center. What was it after that? I think I still have a ticket that says First American Music Center. Maybe that'll be worth something. Uh, that October, First American National Bank merged into Alabama-based AmSouth Bank Corporation. So AmSouth agreed to assume the naming rights upon the merger. So just after one season, it was turned into AmSouth Amphitheater. <laughs> a lot of people re remember it for that, especially the kind of the younger crowd. Uh, because it was created, you know, that was named in 2000. Right. Um, that was a five-year deal. AmSouth agreed to put their name on it for five years. After five years, they withdrew, uh, and then there was no new suitor. So basically, in 2004, it went back to Starwood Amphitheater. Right. Because nobody else wanted to buy the naming rights. Right. And that, that's got to be a big thing if you're, like, relying on some sort of money that's coming. It's like that sponsorship money or whatever naming right money that's coming in and sure. you don't have it anymore but so, like every other amphitheater in the country it always remains what it was in the beginning right uh there's a, a venue that i love in indiana called deer, deer creek. creek and i think it's now called maybe verizon wireless music center or something like that i did yeah i do remember that going through a bunch of ch name changes um we want to say you know we want to kind of round out episode one again there are some big things coming up for episode two but we want to round out episode one uh talking about the reason that these two parts came together for a lot of people in nashville who you know fondly remember starwood amphitheater the concerts that went on there we're going to continue in episode two talking about tons of that tons more stories but the reason this episode came to light or this little series came to light is because I was scrolling through Facebook one day and found, I think, a picture of like an old Starwood or maybe the demolition of Starwood. And then, I, you know, you kind of go down those rabbit holes and you find things like the Starwood Amphitheater Memories page. So in 2016, a guy named Justin created the Starwood Amphitheater Memories Facebook page. And it, it's a a place for all of people to come and post pictures and concert tickets and lanyards and flyers and, you know, everything Starwood Amphitheater related because it meant so much to so many people for, you know, 20 years. 
And he created this, and it has been a godsend to me. There's about 1,500 members, which I think is way too low. And there was a, a chance where I got to send him. I, I got in touch with Justin because I wanted to know for this podcast a couple of questions that he uh, – a couple of questions about why he created the group, uh, you know, what the end goal is, what, you know, what has this group done to him personally and for the community of Nashville – and in order to protect the innocence and the integrity of somebody who created something so special, he didn't want to come on the podcast uh, unless we disguised his voice. And we understand that, and we completely sim- sympathize with that. Yeah, I wish I could disguise my voice. Right? It, it's crazy. So um, what we're going to do is we're going to take you to a little portion of the interview with Justin, who created this amazing Facebook page called Starwood Amphitheater Memories page. What gave you the idea to start the Starwood Memories Facebook page, and how has it grown since its inception in 2016? Also, did you envision it would gain this much traction in the last year? Well, one day back in 2016, I was on Facebook, and for some reason I started searching for Starwood. To my surprise, there was no Starwood group, so I decided to start one right then and there. I figured all we needed was a place where we could keep Starwood and our memories alive. I remember for the first six months, we only had like 20 people in the group, but slowly it started to grow, and soon we'll have a few thousand members in the Starwood Amphitheater Memories group. Here in the past four months, it's really grown, probably because we're all stuck inside and want to relive better times. We've got more and more people joining every single day. God, isn't that the truth? We all we we want to go back to concerts, and if we can dive into our memory, right? I mean, yeah, it's just like a nostalgia trip for everybody. What haven't you looked up at this point? Absolutely, everybody is reaching the end of the internet. <laughs> so we had one more question for Justin. Justin, were there any uh, other thoughts or ideas you wanted to share with our listenership? You know, Starwood was more than just a concert amphitheater to a lot of us. Memories were made there that people still hold on to and talk about. Starwood made a lot of people's lives better. I guess all I got left to say is that if you love Starwood, then come join the Starwood Amphitheater's memory group. All are welcome and we'd love to hear your stories and memories about Starwood. And that's, I mean, that's a good way to end it because there, that, that, actually allows our listenership to do a little homework this week. Um, So you've heard our part one episode of Starwood Amphitheater. There is a lot in store for part two, uh, which is going to air next Monday. I don't have a Facebook account, so I'm going to challenge our listenership to tell me a name I should make a Facebook account under and send me the profile picture I should use for it and even write a bio for it. Like create a character for create my avatar that I can be on Facebook. That's pretty incredible. Just um, to check out this page. Please, somebody do that other than me, because I have so many ideas now. <laughs> Actually, there's like 10 people out there that I don't hope do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, again, we want to thank uh, Justin for answering a couple of questions and Joe for the incredible interview earlier in the episode. Part two is going to include a, other bands who have played over the years. We're going to get into the mid-90s to the early 2000s. Uh, we're going to have, Ooh, the special thing for next week is I'm going to have juice box unveil my remaining concert tickets from Starwood to show him some of the concerts that I've been to over the years. I think there's going to be some surprises in there. He might look at me differently after he sees some of these. Did you ever see Bon Jovi? There, 
is a Bon Jovi ticket Fuck in yeah, there. there is. Um, and we're actually going to interview a girl named Jennifer who has who actually her house and her backyard has backed up to the Starwood property her entire life. Which I mean, I can't even. I can't even comprehend that. And then we're going to get into the closing of Starwood, why it did. That's the sad part, but we're going to make it a little bit fun. And then what has happened to that property over the years? Uh, we're going to round it out with that. We've got a couple of other interviews for you guys. We've got a couple more stories, and we're excited. So as always, wherever you're listening to us today, feel free to take 30 seconds to like us, rate us, tell your friends. If you are listening to us from that Starwood Facebook memories page that Justin created, feel free to share it. Share it with your friends. Invite them to that page. Um, we want more community. We want more pictures, more content. Um, thank you so much for listening. We are here each and every Monday. We're excited uh, to get back next week for part two. Party on. Party <laughs> on.